Welcome to TSX Quarterly, the podcast that brings you publicly available earnings calls from companies listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange in one convenient location. Gone are the days of looking through confusing websites. You'll find the important information right here. Enjoy the call. gentlemen, welcome to the Q3 2020 Financial Results Conference Call. I would now like to turn the meeting over to Vlad Valadarsky. Please go ahead. Thank you, Elena. Good morning, and thank you for joining us today. There is a slide presentation to accompany this conference call, available on our website at charwell.com under the Investor Relations tab. Joining me are Karen Sullivan, President and Chief Operating Officer, Sherry Harris, Chief Financial Officer, and Jonathan Balakia, Chief Investment and Chief Legal Officer. Let me remind everyone that during this call, we may make statements containing forward-looking information and non-GAAP measures. I direct you to our MD&A and other securities filings for information about the assumptions, risks, and uncertainties inherent in such forward-looking information, and details of such non-GAAP measures. More specifically, I direct you to the added disclosure in our Q3 2020 MDNA under the heading Forward-Looking Information and COVID-19 Risk for discussion of risks and uncertainties introduced by the pandemic. These documents can be found on our website or at cedar.com. As new waves of the pandemic continue throughout Canada, Charwell people are once again being called upon to step up to protect the most vulnerable segment of our population. And step up they do, day in and day out, from our residences to our regional and corporate support teams and critical incident command. Our people work tirelessly to preserve the safety and well-being of our residents, their families, and support each other. I am grateful to each one of them for their exceptional work in these challenging times. Nothing speaks better to this work as the recognition received from our residents and their families, the heartwarming stories of empathy, care, and love that we receive every day. It is clear that even when restrictions make it difficult to visit with family and friends, because of our staff, our residents are never alone. I would like to take this opportunity to express my appreciation to the federal government and provincial governments for their support during the pandemic. Particularly, I would like to highlight the efforts of the Ontario government in supporting the long-term care sector in the province, including a commitment to fund the average four hours of care per resident by 2025. And as a result of recent improvements made to the long-term care redevelopment program, we have commenced the redevelopment of a 100-bed Charwell Ballycliff long-term care residence in Ajax, Ontario. This project has been five years in making, and I want to extend my thanks to our development and operating teams for their tenacity and commitment to make it a reality. Once completed in the spring of 2023, the new residence built to current design standards will serve 224 residents, 134 of them in private rooms. We are seeing a much improved collaboration of retirement and long-term care operators with our healthcare system partners, public health authorities, hospitals, and governments. This is a welcome change from our experience in the spring. Only working together, we can overcome this unprecedented challenge and protect the most vulnerable segment of our population. Our Q3 and year-to-date 2020 results have been significantly impacted by the pandemic. 
primarily because of occupancy declines and significant additional expenses incurred to keep our residents and staff safe. Unfortunately, these headwinds are expected to continue to impact our results in the short term. Various restrictions and conditions on prospective residents' visits and new residents' move-ins remain in place in many of our markets, and with the recent increases in the number of cases in the community, more of our residences are being impacted by COVID-19 outbreaks. While these outbreaks have not been as severe as the ones we experienced in the spring, they negatively affect our ability to conduct personalized tours and resident move-ins, which in turn continue to negatively impact our occupancies in the short term. To continue to weather the storm while prioritizing resident, family, and employee safety, we are focused on efficiencies and cost controls. We have become even more selective in allocating our capital and deferred some discretionary capital expenditures. We maintain a strong liquidity, which as of November 5, 2020, amounted to $408 million, including $61.6 million of cash and cash equivalents and $347 million of available borrowing capacity on our credit facilities. We continue to access debt financing on favorable terms, refinancing our maturing debt, and topping up maturities during the term where applicable. I believe that once the current restrictions ease, the pent-up demand for our services combined with continuing severe shortage of long-term care beds will support our occupancy recovery in the medium term. Over the long term, I believe the prospect of our sector remains bright. The growth in the over 75-year-old population is accelerating, particularly in 2022 and 2023, which in turn should drive the demand for our services. I also believe that the pace of new construction starts has slowed down through this pandemic, which should result in fewer new suites coming to market at the time when the demand is expected to pick up, creating strong conditions for further occupancy growth. Our team has tremendous depth of expertise, which now includes operating through a pandemic, a resolve to succeed, and dedication to our purpose of making people's lives better. Our culture is exceptional, our brand is strong and getting stronger, and our strategy is clear. I believe Charlo is well positioned to persevere in the current conditions, come out stronger, and succeed in creating lasting value for all our stakeholders. I'm going to turn the call over to Karen to provide a more detailed operational update. Thanks, Vlad. Turning to slide five, our efforts in Q3 focused on learning from wave one of the pandemic in order to best be prepared for wave two. The fundamental difference this fall compared to last spring is that we know more about the asymptomatic spread of the virus. Testing is improving, PPE is much more readily available, and our processes for handling outbreaks and suspected outbreaks have been well-established, tested, and standardized. This has allowed our retirement residences and long-term care homes to continue to put the safety of our residents and staff at the forefront, while also allowing visitors in our homes, as well as new admissions who require our care and services. This balance takes significant effort from our teams across the country who have worked tirelessly to adapt to changing provincial directives while caring for our residents physically and emotionally and supporting their families through this difficult time. I could not be more proud of the Chartwell teams in our homes as well as on our operations critical incident command. The CIC, as we call it, continues to meet daily to assist our residences to interpret and effectively implement directives and guidelines that are now changing, not only based on the province, but also the city, municipality, or health region within that province. 
This support continues to include a 24-7 hotline operated with nursing staff to assist our homes with questions and concerns. With respect to resident safety, we have hired an Infection Prevention and Control, or IPAC, specialist for each of our long-term care homes and reorganized our corporate departments to include an IPAC lead for both the long-term care and retirement platforms. We are also well underway with our typical flu season clinics. In order to ensure that we have an adequate supply of PPE, personal protective equipment, we continue to not only utilize our regular supplier, but we are augmenting this with our own supply chain distribution strategy, which allows us to obtain and distribute PPE as quickly as possible to meet our residents' needs and to get the best price possible as PPE prices stabilize. In addition, where we have had outbreaks during Wave 2, specifically in our long-term care homes, we have been working very closely with local hospitals, public health, and Ontario health officials to coordinate infection control practices and staffing strategies, particularly with respect to physicians and nurse practitioners. These partnerships are a vast improvement from the spring when long-term care homes did not get the support required to help our most vulnerable residents. Our partners in the healthcare system have been invaluable, and in turn, they have been highly complimentary of our Chartwell teams for their efforts and ability, in particular to stabilize staffing during an outbreak. This is due to our national recruitment campaign that has resulted in over 1,800 people being hired since March, as well as our strategic relationships with a variety of staffing agencies. The response to the pandemic is being studied by the Ontario Long-Term Care Commission on COVID-19, which began meeting with key stakeholders, including Chartwell, in October. A series of interim recommendations has already been published, focusing not only on proactive collaboration with hospitals and public health units, but also funding to increase the supply of PSWs, implementation of the recently released LTC staffing study, and access to point of care and less invasive testing as it becomes available. In response, the provincial government just announced, uh, as Vlad said, their intention to fund LTC homes to provide an average of four hours of care per resident per day by 2024-25. In addition to the commission, the Ontario government has also announced funding uh, to continue to assist LTC homes with operating pressures, occupancy protection, minor capital repairs and renovations, IPAC resources, and an eight-week supply of PPE per home. Turning to slide six, we continue to focus on sales initiatives in our retirement residences, including personalized tours in our Quebec, BC, and Alberta homes, as well as in our Ontario homes that are not in alert or high alert status. We are also offering personalized virtual tours in all of our properties. Our new approach to selling was the focus of our sales training this fall, which was done virtually with our 180-member sales force. In addition, we rolled out our new referral strategy and an updated winter stay program. With respect to marketing, we are continuing our multimedia campaign called Life is Better Together. The campaign focuses on the importance of social engagement while maintaining enhanced safety standards. This campaign is running on TV, social media, print ads, direct mail, and radio throughout November. Turning to slide seven, throughout this pandemic, we have been guided by and have benefited from our focus on our unique value proposition, the Chartwell Experience. Our service vision statement is to deliver an exceptional resident experience that is personalized, memorable, and feels like home, where family and friends feel welcome and respected. 
To this end, we have adapted some of our strategies, such as modifying our Welcome to Chartwell program and making changes to some of the curriculum in our customer experience training for our frontline staff. We've also introduced new programs and initiatives, including developing a 14-day transition together program to assist residents who must isolate when they move in, introducing specific customer service training for our screeners, who are the first point of contact for visitors, modifying our life enrichment best practices for COVID-19, developing a healthy living series so that residents can remain active and connected, and modifying our care service offerings in our Ontario retirement residences to ensure that we are meeting the needs of our current and future residents. In terms of families and loved ones, we continue to send communication to them via email every week, as well as more often if the home goes into outbreak or suspected outbreak. We're also seeing our residents' families more often as visitor restrictions have eased, and in many cases, as loved ones have chosen to be designated as essential caregivers. We believe all of these efforts are helping our retirement residences feel like home for our residents and their loved ones and their loved ones feel welcome even during this challenging time. I continue to be extremely proud of our Chartwell Strong team, including most importantly our frontline workers and our management teams and our residences, as well as our corporate team members who support our homes. Their hard work and dedication and fearless effort to contain this virus um, will continue to help us to make people's lives uh, better. Oh, sorry. Now I'd like to sorry. I'd like to turn it over to Sherry Harris, our chief financial officer, to talk about our financial results. Thank sure. you. Thank you very much, Karen. <laughs> As shown on slide eight in Q3 2020, our net loss was 6.8 million compared to a net loss of 0.8 million in Q3 2019. For Q3 2020, FFO was 38 million, or 17 cents per unit compared to 53.7 million or 25 cents per unit in Q3 2019. Our same property adjusted NOI decreased by 13 million or 17.2% in Q3 2020. Same property occupancy was 83.3% in Q3 2020 compared to 89.7% in Q3 2019. In our retirement residences, same property occupancy declined to 82.5% in Q3 2020 compared to 88.3% in Q3 2019. Permanent move-ins were 75% of previous year volumes and move-out activity continued to be slightly below previous year levels. Through Q3, we saw increases each month over the previous month in move-in activity, along with a slight increase in move-out activity. In addition to the impact of lower occupancies on our Q3 results, we have made investments in initiatives to enhance, enhance resident safety and staff safety, and our pandemic expenses continue to exceed announced government funding by approximately $4.1 million for Q3 2020. The majority of our pandemic expenses are for additional staff to provide screening, enhanced cleaning and disinfection, to expand dining service hours to facilitate physical distancing, and in many of our retirement residences for additional care where families were not able to provide assistance in person or where governments were not able to provide home care services. 
To date, investments in our Ontario long-term care homes are not yet fully funded. Reduced marketing, food, supplies, and repairs and maintenance in our residences and contributions from our acquisitions and developments partially offset our reduced occupancy and unfunded pandemic-related expenses. Turning to slide nine, I will discuss our same property operating platforms results. In Ontario, occupancy was 77.5% compared to 83.8% in Q3 2019. NOI decreased 6.9 million or 18.3% due to lower occupancies, pandemic-related expenses net of funding of 2.4 million, higher property taxes, utilities, and office expenses, which were partially offset by rental rate increases in line with competitive market conditions and lower food and marketing expenses. In Western Canada, our occupancy was 88.3% compared to 95% in Q3 2019. NOI decreased 1.5 million or 9.9% due to lower occupancies, higher property tax, staffing costs, and office expenses, which were partially offset by rental rate increases in line with competitive market conditions, government funding net of pandemic expenses, and lower food and marketing expenses. In Quebec, occupancy was 86.7% compared to 91.2% in Q3 2019. NOI decreased 3.4 million or 21.8% due to lower occupancies higher property taxes resulting from a rebate in Q3 2019 for which there is not a comparable amount in Q3 2020, pandemic-related expenses net of funding of 0.6 million, and staffing costs, which were partially offset by rental rate increases in line with competitive market conditions. In long-term care, occupancy was 88.3% compared to 98.8% in Q3 2019. NOI decreased 1.5 million, or 17.8%. Same property adjusted NOI decreased 1.2 million, or 16%, due to re reduced preferred accommodation revenues and increased nursing and pandemic expenses that exceeded government funding. Turning to slide 10, you will see our monthly occupancies. In October 2020, occupancy declined 0.3 percentage points. The pace of decline in occupancy has steadily slowed since the onset of the pandemic in mid-March, with move-in activity increasing each month. Leasing activity has been slower in October with increased restrictions on in-person tours in certain of our residences and with elevated COVID-19 cases in the community. We collected substantially all rent and service fees for October and November, consistent with our past experience. As noted, we continue our investments to protect our residents and staff and reduce the spread of COVID-19. We do anticipate costs decreasing as we move to a more steady state. Our priority must be to protect our residents and staff, and as such, our reduction in costs is expected to be gradual and will be based on careful risk assessments. We will rationalize and improve schedules where and while single-site staffing restrictions remain in place and where we have added staff to provide additional services previously provided by families or home care 
that has not been available, we will work with our residents to assess additional service revenue opportunities on a go-forward basis. In addition, some discretionary corporate projects will be deferred. We continue to advocate for the government to fund the governments to fund incremental expenses and home care services that we have replaced out of necessity to ensure that our residents are cared for appropriately. In addition, we are in the process of implementing the Canada Emergency Wage Subsidy, SUS, to maintain quality jobs for our employees who provide necessary services. We expect to apply for approximately three to four million of staffing support for Q3 2020. As you can see on slide 11, at September 30th, 2020, our liquidity amounted to 357.8 million, which included 51.4 million of cash and cash equivalents and 306.4 million of available borrowing capacity on our credit facilities. In addition, our share of cash and cash equivalents held in our equity accounted JVs was 7.6 million. At September 30th, 2020, our unencumbered assets had a value of 928.8 million. Our mortgage maturities remain well staggered with an average term to maturity of 6.4 years at September 30th, 2020. Our interest coverage ratio was three times at September 30th, 2020. Our debt to gross book value calculated using the historical cost of our assets was 52.6% at September 30th, 2020. Our net debt to adjusted EBITDA ratio was 9.1 times. Consistent with our business strategy to build and purchase high quality state of the art new properties, our portfolio currently includes several new properties in Lisa. In Q3 2020, four newly developed property, properties and one recently acquired property with an aggregate gross book value of 274.5 million and weighted average occupancy in Q3 2020 of 44.2%, generated adjusted NOI of 0.7 million in Q3 2020. Upon achieving the expected stabilized occupancy of 96%, these residences are estimated to generate annualized adjusted NOI of 20.3 million at our share of ownership. Our net debt to adjusted EBITDA metric when calculated with the additional incremental NOI of these properties as though stabilized of $18.1 million would be 8.6 times. Turning to slide 12, as slide noted, at November 5th, 2020, liquidity amounted to 408.6 million. We expect to be able to meet all of our obligations as they come due utilizing primarily cash flow generated from our operations, property-specific mortgages, secured and unsecured credit facilities, or term loans. The pandemic has introduced significant uncertainties, and we continue to monitor the situation closely. We have 14.2 million of remaining mortgage maturities in 2020, of which 12.4 million are CMHC insured, CMHC refinancings for 10-year terms are currently being arranged at approximately 1.75%. In 2021, we have 244.3 million of mortgage maturities, of which 37.5 million are currently CMHC insured. With strong lending relationships and scheduled refinancings of our mortgage maturities in 2020 and 2021 are proceeding in the normal course with top-up opportunities available. 
projects under construction are budgeted to require an additional one hundred and nine million dollars to completion this includes fifty two point five million related to the redevelopment of chartwell valley cliff which we anticipate financing with construction financing chartwell with teasdale two has achieved stabilized occupancy as defined in our agreements with bachimal we expect to complete the acquisition of an 85 percent interest in this project in q4 2020 and are currently in negotiations on pricing we anticipate settling the purchase price by assuming the related construction financing of 37.3 million and repayment of the outstanding mezzanine loan of 3.9 million with the balance to be paid in cash we regularly reinvest capital in our owned property portfolio with the goal of growing our property NOI and protecting and maintaining our property due to restrictions in accessing our residences only emergency capital works were undertaken during the first wave of the pandemic while we have begun to allow contractors into our buildings with very strict requirements on infection control practices we do anticipate that our 2020 capital investments will be approximately 85 percent of our historical spend i will now turn the call back to vlad to wrap up thank you sherry thank you for your time and attention this morning we would now be pleased to answer your questions elena please open the lines Certainly, thank you. If you have a question and you're using a speakerphone, please lift your handset prior to making your selection. If you have a question, please press star 1 on your device's keypad. If at any time you wish to cancel your question, please press the pound sign. Please press star 1 at this time. If you have a question, there will be a brief pause while the participants register. Thank you for your patience. <coughs> the first question is from Brandon Abrams. Please go ahead. Your line is now open. Hi, good morning, everyone. Good morning. Um, this might be a, a difficult question to answer, but just as it uh, pertains to retirement occupancy, it looks to have stabilized here over the last few months at around 82%. Just wondering um, your expectations over the next few months, uh, you know, based on uh, which whichever indicators uh, you're looking at, whether it be, you know, deposits, uh, site uh, visitor tours, et cetera. Maybe just, uh, you know, would you expect uh, this to trend, you know, maybe a little bit upward, a little bit downward, uh, or, or stay relatively flat through uh, kind of the fall and uh, remaining fall and winter months? Just maybe some color there. Sure. So um, I'll give you some color sort of on uh, occupancy just overall since uh, the pandemic and where, where it is and where we see it going. So. In wave one, we really, as we all know, as a society, really shut down. So we would have had very uh, limited move-ins, and that's when you would have seen our our occupancy um, decline. Um, when the summer came and we were able to start to open up, um, we actually saw improvements in our occupancy in August uh, and into September. So I, you mean in move-ins? In move-ins, sorry, uh, in move-ins. Um, and so we see that uh, as a good sign. October, when we are now, you know, seeing wave two, that's where we've um, uh, seen a bit of a, a, a decline um, in, in leases. But... The other thing I would say is we're not shutting down 
um, across provinces uh, the way we were before. It's being done in these pockets where they see community spread. And so we, you know, we saw that in October, but um, we're already starting to see some of those communities open up. So in Ontario, they put us in either high alert or alert status, but then they take a community out of, of, of that status so that we can do personalized tours. And um, I think we'll start to see uh, a pickup where that happens. And the other thing I would say is, the needs of the seniors who are living at home um, uh, are not changing. Um, if anything, they're increasing. So, um, you know, that, that I think uh, those, those needs will have to be filled. I think people are probably thinking about whether they can actually stay home for the winter um, as opposed to whether they need care uh, and service in retirement homes. And then we have a number of strategies in place as well um, whether it's our make a, a friend, uh, a neighbor referral program or a winter stay program. So um, that's just a bit of color on where we see that going. Yeah, and Brandon, of course, in this environment, nobody will be able to give you any kind of definitive answers or, or numbers of where we see it going. It really will be dependent on the severity of restrictions that remain in place or the openness that remain in place. And, um, and um, you know, we are doing all we can to encourage people and uh, have help them understand the safety and precautions that we're taking in our residences to make uh, to help with their decision to move in. As Karen pointed out, the uh, pent-up demand, I believe, is in the system. And um, when these restrictions are lifted or the case count in the community starts to go down, um, my expectation is that we will start seeing much better um, pace of move-ins and recovery. But when this will happen is, at this point in time, very hard to predict. Yeah, no, of course. Uh difficult to forecast in this environment for sure. And maybe just um, on a related topic of uh, rental rates, it looks like uh, overall it's still, it's, you know, you've been able to hold rates fairly firm, maybe even increase in certain instances. Um, you know, where occupancy is, you know, within your portfolio in the sector, I know historically, um, you know, that's not really an area where you know, you wanted to, uh, you know, either reduce rates or give incentives because it could be a bit of a slippery slope. I'm just wondering if, you know, if that philosophy, uh, you know, may have to change uh, over the near or maybe medium term, especially as, you know, potentially some of your, uh, you know, competitors who are not as well capitalized, you know, smaller operators, um, uh, depending on, on what they do with market conditions. So I'm just wondering if you could give some color there. Our, our philosophy is not changing. We are um, offering value to our residents and uh, lifestyle and quality of lifestyle that we provide in our homes. And we are not uh, going to be competing on discounts with other people. Um, we much rather understand the customer. We under, would love to understand their needs, what exactly they value and what exactly matters to them, and then uh, do our best to address those needs. And if it ends up being a, a few hundred dollar discount, that, that might be it. But in many cases, that's not what the customer really wants. And especially in these circumstances where you think about safety and you think about quality of staff and quality of services that people provide, um, the discounts probably is not the first thing that anybody's thinking when they come to the residences. And so um, not only our philosophy is not changing, it's probably even more reinforced in the situation like today. 
Okay, and then uh, maybe just on the uh, unfunded pandemic-related costs of just over four million, uh, is that um, you know a, a level that you would expect uh, to incur over the next uh, few quarters, just for uh, modeling purposes? Yeah, it, I mean, it, it is a bit hard to predict, and um, we continue to uh, advocate with various governments um, in relation to incremental funding. Uh, last night, there was an announcement from the Ontario government, which will be absorb about 1.2 million of the um, Ontario retirement expenses that we would have uh, we would have included in our results. Um, on a go forward in terms of monthly expenses, we would look to um, stabilize the number there, Brandon, uh, for now. Right. Okay, that's helpful. I'll turn it over. Thank you. Thank you. The next question is from Jonathan Kelcher. Please go ahead. Thanks. Uh, good morning. Um, first first question, just on um, insurance, you, you talked a little bit about in the MDNA about um, increasing rates. What what has insurance typically run historically as a percentage of revenue? Uh, well, we're, we'll, we're we'll working have, on that. We'll have to get you this number, Jonathan. As you know, uh, our expenses are, let's say, in retirement, be 60% labor, um, 10% food and realty taxes and um, utilities. After that, whatever's left is, is not as much in sort of overall expenses. Um, you know, I'd be guessing right now our number probably less than $10 million in insurance premiums yeah. uh, for the year. Um, that's historical. So I don't know if that okay, answers just, your question. Just trying to get, well, yeah, I'm just trying to get a sense of, uh, like, if I, if I doubled it, um, what that would sort of do type of thing. Uh, and is that is that sort of the way to think about it? Could it be that high? Uh, well, no. Um, it's not going to be that high. I'll maybe turn it over to Jonathan just to give you a bit more color on what we're seeing there in the marketplace. We're in the middle of the renewal process right now. Sure. So uh, it is it is a very hard market in insurance generally, uh, in all, all classes of insurance. Um, and uh, that is partly uh, due to the industry we're in and partly due to a broader um, uh, market on insurance. So we're working on our renewal and it renews uh, pretty shortly. Um, we're looking at our retention levels or deductible levels and, and uh, the premiums we would pay. Um, we, so we haven't settled on what that will be, but we're pretty confident uh, at this point that we're going to have appropriate coverage um, uh, uh, and, and you know, the amount of premium uh, increase is yet to be uh, determined, but... Uh, so we'd be looking we to minimize that at about, yeah, yeah. 40% would be a number that we're certainly not think it's going to be more than... That's probably worst case. Um, we, having said all that, we don't think that the insurance climate um, properly or appropriately reflects the actual risk that we think there is. Uh, we think that risk um, has been greatly mitigated by, or will be greatly mitigated by, um, proposed legislation in Ontario that would um, protect uh, service providers like us to the extent we weren't grossly negligent and to the extent we followed um, public health guidelines, and that legislation is already in place in BC. So um, we think that the risk there has been, has been reduced. 
Okay, that, that, that's helpful. Um, switching gears, just, and I know you probably won't say too much because you're in the negotiations with Batamo, but um, how, how has that um, how has that changed versus the, the last couple of assets, or has it changed really versus the last couple of assets that you that you bought from Batamo earlier this year? How think, what like changed? looking for difference in valuations. Oh, so um, you know, to to start off, we we are very uh, keen and excited to get this building. It's connected to our existing building, uh, Teesdale, um, and as you noted, we're we're negotiating the price. So. Um, we can't really or won't really get into where we expect to land on that, uh, but we are in those negotiations and we expect to close in the next few months. Um, in terms of change, um, there haven't been a ton of transactions out there, so it's hard to see how uh, pricing has changed generally. There's a lot of uncertainty uh, due to the pandemic and uh, I guess uh, hesitancy on um, buyers' parts to deploy capital, and that has been tempered uh, by what we see uh, uh, the, the very low interest rates. So, all that to say, um, there's not a whole lot of data points out there, uh, and we're we're in the thick of discussions with Batimo on on the purchase price. So, uh, more to come on that. Okay. Uh, and then just last one for me, um, the Ontario government, I think last week announced that it's, it's selling some, some excess land for um, purpose-built long-term care development. Is that, is that something that you guys would look at, any of those three parcels? We are, we are looking at those three parcels. Each of them comes with uh, different requirements on uh, size of build. So um, we are actively looking at that as we look uh, at ways um, to um, redevelop our existing Class C homes and, and these new programs, uh, which we also carefully look at. Okay, and then with those, um, and, and maybe you can or can't answer this, but with those, with those properties, given that there is a long-term care component, would it, would it sort of limit the, the buyer group to basically um, operators, current operators of LTC properties? It, it's still a little early to answer that question, but I, I, I suspect it would, given the fact that there is an LTC component, and, and I don't think there are a lot of people looking to enter the space that don't have that kind of operating experience. So um, I suspect the answer is yes. Or they'd need management. Or, or they would need management. <clears throat> okay, thanks. I'll, uh, I'll turn it back. Thank you. The next question is from Chris Cooper. Please go ahead. Good morning. Um, kind of wanted to circle back uh, on Brendan's questions regarding occupancy. Um, just appreciate we can't, um, you know, with the restrictions, we don't know what the pace of move-ins might be. Um, but what about overall lead generation? How is that uh, trending on a year-over-year basis? Um, I mean, I would imagine part of the change would be commensurate with the the, the um, uh, how much marketing that you're doing, but just any, uh, any color on lead generation. And um, just also curious on uh, virtual tours versus uh, in-person tours. If you've, I mean, maybe there's just not enough information at this point, but uh, if you've noticed any um, difference in closing ratios between the two types of activity. Um, 
I, I guess it varies month by month depending on what restrictions are in place uh, out there. Clearly, when um, everybody, you know, people hear the escalation in the number of community cases, um, you know, the, the natural reaction for people is to hunker down and not really start looking uh, for moving. So um, the, the lead generation has been slower uh, compared to prior periods. It's better than it was in the middle of the first wave of pandemic. So I think it follows sort of discussion that Karen had answering Brandon's question. It's better than wave one. It's not as good as last year. And that's applicable to lead generation, initial contacts, move-ins. Um, all of our kind of leading indicators are going in the same direction. It's not as good as last year, but better than what we saw in wave one. And, and I just want to comment, we, we can do personalized tours uh, in Quebec and Western Canada. Um, it's, it's just in Ontario where we're restricted um, and that's if our homes are in high alert or alert, which is changing on a weekly basis. They've uh, put communities in and out. Mostly they've been, well, in our case, it was reduced uh, the number of homes uh, week over week that uh, were in those uh, higher uh, status categories. Um, I'd also say it's just like all of us are getting used to uh, WebEx and all of the different uh, Zoom, whatever we're using to do business. Um, our sales force has, I, I would suggest, done a very good job um, learning how to use the new technology to do, and they're not just virtual tours, they're personalized virtual tours um, with our, our prospects and their families, um, and um, it, our, our training has gone very well. So. Um, you know, I, I, I think the fact that we have this kind of technology now um, has been very advantageous uh, for us. Um, and then people do, of course, you know, come in to uh, be able to sign their lease and sort of see their, their uh, suite um, before they actually move in. Okay, thanks. That's good color. And then maybe a series of, of questions just uh, regarding um, different legislation that's out there. Um, the uh, the wage subsidy, um, uh, do you expect to uh, potentially receive more uh, funding uh, in Q4? And just, you know, technical perspective, how, how, how is this going to um, flow through on the financials? Um, and then um, two other quick ones, uh, that Bill 218 that was alluded to, is there a timetable as to when that may pass? And then the occupancy protection funding and long-term care, um, you know, I think it's till December. Uh, any kind of update on what's happening there? That's it for me. Thanks. Sure. So I'll take uh, Sue's first. Um, it's a function of the revenue decline and the factors for that time period. Um, the federal, it's federal government program, those factors have been changing. The program has been announced to go through to June of 2021 at this point, but the factors will decline over time. So we do expect that um, we will continue to be eligible for certain entities. Um, it's defined at the eligible employer level. Uh, we will record this the same way we're recording other government funding, which is in our retirement residences. Uh, it is net um, in the expenses and in our Ontario long-term care homes, it is gross. So you'll see it revenue and, and expense. Um, so, you know, it, again, it will be math depending on the revenue decline and the factors in place for the government for Q4, but it should continue on until at this point the announced um, timeframe is to June 2021. Um, in terms of the occupancy protection, 
we would have, um, it's about 4,500 beds that come out of the system by closing the three and four bed wards to a maximum of two occupants. Um, we are you know, very optimistic that that will continue on through to um, through the next wave of the pandemic into 2021, um, as long as we're in this um, position of only two occupants in those uh, rooms. And for uh, Bill 218, it's passed its second reading, so we would expect it to become law soon. Uh, it, I'd note that it's a, um, a, a government a bill or proposed by a member of government of the majority government, so we don't expect there to be any issues, but um, I'm speculating. Yeah, and we are hoping that once that is in place that that mitigates some of our insurance uh, issues, discussions as well. Absolutely. Thanks very much. Thank you. The next question is from Himanshu Gupta. Please go ahead. Thank you and good morning. Uh, so just on the COVID cases in your portfolio, uh, it seems that the number of homes uh, in outbreak in November are much less than the number of homes in outbreak in the month of April, May. Uh, so is the way, you know, the public health is declaring a home in outbreak, has the definition changed this time at all? Or is it mostly because, you know, Chartville is better prepared this time, more testing is being done, more safety protocols is being followed? Yeah, yeah I, so a few things I'd say. First of all, we do understand uh, the, the virus better and the asymptomatic um, nature of it. So that's that's been helpful. Um, and where I said in my remarks that, that testing is better, um, it's better than it was, and again, that helps, and there's more sort of consistent testing. Um, I, I would also say that the, the key to this is to have less invasive, more rapid testing. Uh, and and you know federal and the federal government and provincial governments have been looking at that. It looks like there could be something. Um, and there's talk about uh, long-term care and retirement homes with these vulnerable populations, long-term care in particular, being uh, prioritized um, uh, for that for sure. So. Um, our processes have been defined. I mean, we were we were developing processes in wave one. They're now in place, and uh, we have these IPAC specialists that's helping. In long-term care, we have um, we don't you know we we feel like uh, our partners in the healthcare system this time are helping uh, through hospitals and public health, uh, et cetera. So that that those things are all helping us. Um, to be better positioned in wave two, but you can't underestimate that you know this this there is you know uh, at this point uh, obviously no vaccine for this and and our our folks are vulnerable so it's why we continue to in particular focus on the need for um, less invasive rapid testing uh, for our sector, which I think will help with the spread and also help us to fulfill our role in retirement, which is to make sure that we're providing uh, care and services for those residents as well. Sure. And in terms of, you know, uh, the definition, like if a staff is declared COVID positive, uh, will you declare, I mean, will they declare the entire home into outbreak or would you simply ask the staff to quarantine and not declare the home into outbreak? So public health determines whether it's an outbreak or not. Um, 
and I would say that there is not complete consistency between public health um, across the country, so it, it does depend. Um, and then we as Chartwell decide, because you can either be in suspect, it can be not an outbreak, you can be in suspected outbreak, um, particularly let's say if you have maybe one staff member and they've uh, not had a lot of contact and they're at home and uh, isolating, um, and then there are, are, are outbreaks. Now sometimes we decide as well at Chartwell, even if you're in suspected outbreak, that we'll put some of the measures in place that are more um, what we call level four outbreak. Um, but at the end of the day, the, the, the actual um, determination of an outbreak is made by public health. Got it. Uh, and then, you know, once a home is declared an outbreak, uh, so I'm assuming the new admissions or the movements are restricted in those homes, uh, for how long, you know, new admission would not be, uh, would not be allowed there? Well, it would depend on the, the length of the outbreak. So some of the outbreaks can uh, have, uh, be over within 14 days, and so it can be very short. And then others, um, you know, can, can be longer. It, it, it just really depends. Um, so um, I, I can't give you an exact number, but a minimum of, of uh, 14 days. Got it. Okay. And then, you know, in terms of the discussion of first wave versus second wave, uh, so if I remember correctly, I mean, your entire focus in the first wave was on safety, and I think marketing or sales program was kind of put to a pause. Uh, and is this time, you know, the marketing uh, sales campaign are going as usual on the side as well, along with the additional safety protocols? I mean, have you slowed down any of your marketing campaign? No, we have a marketing campaign in place and have for the last number of months. Um, and um, we never completely closed down, even in wave one for admissions, but we had very few. Uh, and, and, and then that would have picked up uh, certainly in the summer and we've been running our marketing campaign. Just, just like the, uh, the, re the rest of the country, the provinces were balancing between um, uh, Safety, which is first, always will be first and foremost, but then how do we make sure that we're also um, providing care and services to residents or to seniors uh, in need in the community? So, um, for sure, we are still open for business and, and balancing that with um, uh, making sure that we have the highest IPAC standards and, and, uh, and good programs for our residents so that they stay connected as well because it's both physical and emotional uh, focus that we have. Got it. Uh, and then just switching gears on the same property NOI expectations uh, next year. Uh, I mean, do you think you can get back to 2019 levels uh, I mean, in 2021, or do you think it might take longer than that? And also, you know, I think in your comments, you made a comment that a reduction in costs would be gradual. Uh, I mean, how gradual do you think, uh, you know, that can be given the circumstances? Um, well, these are the questions that we actually um, having a very hard time. We're asking ourselves these questions all the time because the answer to all of this is depends. Right. Um, I fundamentally believe that there is a pent-up demand in the system. I fundamentally believe that people that couldn't move in now for seven months, um, the need hasn't changed. And so they need the services and they're struggling in their homes. 
Um, and so when the restrictions are over, when the sentiment changes in, in the public, we should see uh, improved demand for our services and recovery of occupancy. Your question about whether it's going to happen in the first quarter of 2021, second quarter of the 2021, or next month, we just don't know. So um, it, it's really hard to answer these questions because we just don't know when things will open up and when the spent up demand will materialize to our homes. But I do believe that fundamentally it will. Um, no, that, that's helpful. I, I totally understand. And maybe just final uh, uh, couple of questions on the balance sheet. Uh, credit rating, it was unchanged. I think only outlook was changed to negative. Uh, what could trigger a potential change in credit rating here? I mean, how much room do you have more on the debt to EBITDA or interest coverage ratios? Right. Well, uh, we've maintained ongoing discussions with DBRS, and as you mentioned, you know, the rating was maintained. And we have indicated that, you know, we will be a little higher on our debt levels, and that's what DBRS has indicated um, has moved it to a negative outlook. Um, you'll see that, you know, Valley Cliff, for example, is a project that is five years in, in the making, and we felt compelled to move ahead with that given the economics and fundamental returns that, that were compelling along with our other development projects. So that will be a little higher. We are, um, the range that DBRS has provided on net debt to EBITDA is eight to 10 is their range for triple B low, um, and that is available in their report. Got it. Okay. Thank you so much. Thank you for the caller. I'll turn it back. Thank you. The next question is from Tal Willie. Please go ahead. Hi. Good morning, everybody. Morning. Morning. Um, how many of your suites right now would sort of be prevented from being marketed traditionally? Because I, I, I'm assuming that these outbreaks are, you know, where we're seeing the cases right now, the broader population. Um, do you have an estimate of how many like of your suites right now are sort of uh, where you where you cannot do the physical uh, visits? Yeah, you'll see the list of properties that are in outbreak on our website under the COVID-19 banner. Um, 13, retirement homes. 13 retirement homes was a, as of yesterday where we have outbreaks, so there are no visits or move-ins or anything that's happening in those 13 homes. And then we have homes that are in um, various zones in Ontario where um, the uh, tours are, are not allowed because of the community spread in the locations where these homes are. are. And so that's about 50. Yeah, but we're def definitely with those still marketing and still doing virtual. Yeah. Uh, tours and, and sales are, uh, are occurring even in those homes. It's just the personalized tours. Right. Um, and then I guess like as you've had to adapt here, like you've had, you know, you've moved to these sort of virtual tours, um, you know, are you kind of of the, of the view now that like, you know, this is a, you know, the customer response is pretty decent. The cost, is, you know, it's an attractive cost profile to do a lot of this stuff virtually. Like, do you think this is going to become part of your, you know, way forward, um, yeah. even post-pandemic? Yeah, it's interesting, right? There's always um, things that you, you learn through um, crises. And um, uh, certainly I think this will just be a tool in our toolkit. And, uh, you know, we would have family members who have you know, been helping residents um, try to select a home. This is 
always we've had this and they've been out of town and now we'll be able to use this technology to help that adult daughter let's say um, see the uh, retirement residents uh, virtually so yeah I absolutely think this will stay as part of uh, of what we do yeah it was it was a great personal experience for me I recently moved a parent into a home and my aunt is based in Vancouver on the island and we actually both got to see um, where uh, where my parent was moving to so um, it was it was a really positive experience for her um, to know uh, where her sister was going so got it um, and uh, you had mentioned sort of uh, over the course of Q3 that the move-out rate had ticked up. Um, was that surprising, or is that sort of st anything surprising about the move-out rate ticking up, or anything particular driving that? Uh, no, nothing really surprising. I, you know, it was in the time frame that things were reopening, um, uh, and that is where we would have seen uh, some increased move-out rates. Um, and there is a point at which, you know, in our retirement residences, that isn't the right setting, and moving long-term care is a very different different setting. Um, so that is um, certainly was to be expected as things reopened a bit. Nothing surprising in it. Okay. Um, and I have to think that, you know, the cost of providing your services probably could stay elevated for a bit here while we're you know, continuing through this, pro continuing through this, um, you know, do you think that you'll be able to uh, ameliorate that with, uh, you know, price or, pa you know, packaging of the service revenues to try and better optimize and manage that cost exposure? Certainly we've seen the, you know, we're, now that we have sort of more of the playbook for how we manage and tools in place in terms of data and reporting um, that we are now sort of much, um, we're much more able to manage that. Uh, so we've got tools in place. And then maybe I'll turn it to Karen to speak about some of our other strategies. Yeah, uh, so an example of our cost, our, the PPE is definitely stabilized. It's, you know, the unit price for um, uh, all kinds of, you know, masks, gowns, et cetera, is, is reduced. Um, you know, we're working hard to continue to um, uh, recruit our own staff um, because, you know, agency costs are higher. So we have a pretty fulsome national campaign to do that, and um, staffing costs are our highest cost. So, so that will certainly help as well. Um, uh, and, you know, we are looking as well at how do we um, provide additional care in retirement homes for people who um, maybe are on the waiting list for long-term care or um, wanting to stay with us longer, which um, could help with additional revenue there. Okay. Um, and then uh, just on that Ballycliff uh, redevelopment, um, could you maybe walk through like how you'd sort of expect the cash flows to play out just under this new funding regime, just so we have an idea of like how to think about it. It sounds like you're still basically going to have to front most of the upfront construction and land acquisition costs, that kind of stuff. And then this development grant kicks in somewhere during that process. Um, maybe you can just give us an idea of how that's going to play out. 
Yeah, so there's two components of the funding. Uh, we will front all costs until the building is completed. Then there is a 17% on certain cost grant that comes into play once the building is built. And then there's capital funding subsidy that will be trickling in over the next 25 years. Okay. So it's that's at the end of the construction process. And how that's how long do, would you expect the construction process to be for like a project like this? We expect to open it in uh, first quarter of 2023. Okay, got it. Perfect. Thanks very much, guys. Thank you. Thank you. The next question is from Pammy Burr. Please go ahead. Thanks, and uh, hi, everyone. Um, just with respect to the credit facility, I noticed some changes in terms of the occupancy uh, requirements there. Can you maybe just comment on whether you're seeing any, I guess, broader changes in underwriting, I guess, uh, among lenders, whether it's, you know, loan to value uh, or even spreads? Um, no, we're not seeing. So credit facility is a special uh, circumstance where the secured assets that are securing these, this facility, uh, there's an occupancy requirement on those assets. And obviously during pandemic, uh, some of them fall, fell below and we work with our lenders to um, make sure that they continue to maintain this borrowing capacity for us. And these discussions have been very positive, but it, it's unique to that particular facility. So um, the uh, general lender requirements from what we're seeing uh, in our negotiations with CMHC or the lenders on other type of financings have not really changed. Good to hear. Um, I, I guess just in terms of, I guess, sticking to the credit facilities and the, I guess, trend change from DBRS to, to negative, is there any change in the cost or would that only occur on a rating change? Only occurs on a rating change. Got it. Um, now, I'm not sure if you, you have this available, but, you know, have there been any instances of, of where residents perhaps, you know, contracted COVID after moving in into a, into a retirement home over the last few months? Um, well, the, the residents, you know, the homes that are in outbreak have residents who contracted COVID, so, uh, you know, some of them may have moved recently. I'm not sure your question, Pamela, maybe you can clarify. Yeah, just seeing if, you know, whether, you know, really trying to get a sense of, I guess, you know, the infection prevention that's been imp implemented and, you know, it seems to be going well, but of course, you know, the number of outbreaks have increased as the pandemic has, has resurged. So I guess, you know, just trying to get a sense of it's from existing residents, um, you know, where maybe outside parties or family members came in um, or whether, you know, whether, I'm just trying to get a pulse on whether, you know, the ability to prevent new residents from contracting, you know, is working. Yeah, I mean, Karen described all the um, activities that we take in conjunction with the public health partners to prevent the spread of the virus. The reality, though, is our homes are located in communities, and communities have increased number of COVID-19 cases. We are not in a full lockdown, and we'll, I, I hope we'll never be. I don't think we will. Uh, and that means people come into our homes. It's service providers, it's families, it's our employees. 
Um, and you know, it, it, that, that's when the outbreaks happen. We work with public health to trace the contacts, to understand where where specifically this this virus came. But it, it's all of these people that are bringing the virus into into the homes, including our residents who are going out to the community for um, you know visits and uh, just just out of the homes, hospital appointments. So it, it's all of these things, and that's why we cannot stress enough the need in the rapid testing for our homes. Um, you know, we, we've been saying from the beginning of this pandemic that there's probably not a silver bullet that's going to solve all our problems. We've now, I think, fixed everything that we could. The, the remainder piece is this rapid testing, because even now with improved testing regime that we have in Ontario, it still takes at least 48 hours for the test to come in, and people shedding this virus five days before they become symptomatic, and so you, two days is just too long. If we had this rapid test, I think this would solve a lot of our problems and put more people into kind of safe environment, and, and we knew exactly how to deal with people who are positive. We know exactly how to deal with people who are positive, we just don't know whether they're positive. This fast enough. Yeah, no, for sure. Hopefully, this uh, this this new testing does come through. Um, and thanks for the color. I guess just really one last one for me. Um, just on Bill 218, you know, if passed, would that effectively, you know, eliminate the risks uh, risks associated with the existing, uh, I guess, proposed or three proposed class actions that have been filed? It, it mitigates the risk. It doesn't eliminate the risk because there's there's nothing that would stop a plaintiff or plaintiff's counsel from, um, I guess, restating or, or recharacterizing their claim. I just think it's going to make the bar uh, very or the threshold very high um, in terms of proving um, uh, that uh, any damage caused is 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 worthy of, of a lawsuit. So. I don't think anything can eliminate the risk. There are going to be frivolous lawsuits all the time over all sorts of stuff, um, but uh, it sure helps. Thanks very much. I will turn it back. Thank you. And there are no further questions registered at this time. So I will turn the meeting back over. Thank you. Thank you, Anna, and thank you, everybody, for joining us today. As always, if you have any further questions, please do not hesitate to give any of us a call. Goodbye. Have a great weekend. Thank you. The conference has now ended. Please disconnect your lines at this time, and we thank you for your participation. Thank you for listening to TSX Quarterly. If you enjoyed the cast, remember to leave a good rating. And remember, for any additional inquiries, please consult the company's investor relations section on their website. See you next time. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Coriant has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan 
planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Coriant's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Coriant.com. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.